Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church of Savannah, Georgia. You're listening to the series, Bless the Lord, a study on the book of Psalms. For more information about CBC, please visit www.cbcofsavannah.org. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from God's Word. Father, we come to you this morning wanting you to be magnified, wanting you to be worshipped among us, among all the other churches in this city, across your world. We want you to be worshipped, and we want our hearts to worship you. And God, you know, I just confess that my heart so often fails in worship of you, so often fail to honor you, I so often fail to thank you, I so often fail to give you the praise you deserve, and I'm sorry. Um, I pray, God, that you would stir us up this morning to worship you. I pray this morning, God, with the help of your spirit, that we would find ourselves in the story that you are writing and that we would be compelled to worship you. Please help us. Please help me to speak. Please help us to hear from you. I ask ultimately that you'd be honored in our time, and I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm in Psalm 67, you guys. We'll be in Psalm 67. We've got our uh, JV team up one more time before the varsity team comes back next week, so bear with us. Um, If I were to sit down with you and say, tell me about yourself, what would you say? Maybe you'd start by telling me about your family, you'd start by telling me what you do or or what you're passionate about, or maybe you you would say, I'll tell you what I really love. William, I love your jokes when you preach. And I would say, listen, I get that a lot, I know. (laughs) But what if I said, no, tell me more. Really, tell me about you. What you would probably do is is tell me the story of your life. You'd start with your childhood, your past, all your family, all, all the kind of experiences and the events and the people and the places that have made you who and what you are today. You would share your story. And I think it's normal for us to think of our existence in terms of a story. But here's what can happen very quickly, especially in our individualistic culture. We can start to obsess over our own story. What am I going to do? How how much money am I going to make? How do I make a name for myself? And, And I think it's easy for this sort of individualistic desire to even creep into the church, isn't it? God, what are, you, what are your plans for me? God, won't you just bless my dreams and my goals so that I can, I can accomplish what I want to accomplish? It's almost like we're sort of taught in the Western Christian culture that we're doing God a favor by inviting him into our story. But have you ever stopped to think that God might be writing his own story? Have you ever considered that the one that Hebrews calls the author of our faith might be pinning his own grand narrative for human history. And if that's true, and the Bible seems to imply that it is, then then wouldn't it be an appropriate question for us to ask, God, where do I fit in your story? Where do we fit in your story? 
So that's what I want us to consider this morning. What is our role as God's people in God's story? Again, we'll be in Psalm 67. We are in this series in the book of Psalms called Bless the Lord. We'll be there one more week, and then we'll move into the book of Acts for the fall. I hope this sermon will lead us nicely into the book of Acts. Um, Quickly, before we read the text, I want to define a term for you. I'm going to continue to come back to this term, redemptive history. And when I say that, I want you to know what it means. So when I say redemptive history, what I'm meaning is God's plan over the course of human history to redeem us from the curse that has come on us by sin. So how God has been acting really, truly in human history. What one theologian calls the true story of the whole world. We want to understand that story and find our place in it. So Psalm 67. And again, friends, what an honor to get to sit under the Word of God. What an honor to have the Bible in our laps. Um, a joy. So Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Psalm 67 is a prayer that God would do through his people what he has always intended to do. It's a prayer for God's people to fulfill our role in God's story so that God might perfectly execute his own plan in human history. And right away, we see there's one overpowering idea in Psalm 67. That people from every single language and tribe and nation would worship the one true God. That they would know him. That they would praise him. That they would enjoy him. That they would fear him. Right? Look, at, look at what we see in these verses. Verse 2, the prayers that God's way and his saving power might be known among all the nations. In verse 3 and 5, the chorus is repeated. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 4, the prayers that the nations would be glad and sing for joy in the character and the actions and the guidance of the God of Israel. The last verse, the prayers that the whole earth would fear God. Psalm 67 is a prayer for the global worship of God. That red, yellow, black, white would know and praise and enjoy and fear the one true God. Now to us, this prayer doesn't seem that out of the ordinary, right? We probably considered this idea before. But when we think about the origin of the nations in the biblical story, and when we think about the context of Psalm 67, this is a surprising prayer. Let me tell you what I mean. Here's how the nations came about. Genesis 10 and 11 tells us. So after God judges the earth by the flood, Noah's sons start to have kids. And those kids start to have more kids. And those families get bigger and bigger. They become groups of people. And then ultimately they become nations. But just like their fathers before them, just like everyone that comes from Adam, they were under the curse of sin. And so one day, these people who all spoke the same language, they got together and they wanted to build a tower up to heaven because they wanted to exalt themselves. Chapter 11, verse 4 tells us. And God looks down on all these people trying to exalt themselves. He knows the treasonous motive of their hearts. 
And so he disperses them over the face of the earth. And he confuses their language so they can't understand each other anymore. You see, the nations, as far as the Bible is concerned, came about as an act of God's judgment. And as we trace the nations through the, through the Old Testament narrative, we quickly find that they have turned from the one true God to serve idols. And that's exactly where the surrounding nations were when Psalm 67 was written. The nations were, were pagan idol worshipers. That's what makes this prayer so surprising. But the psalmist was on to something. See, it was almost as if he had the sparks notes, spark notes to the end of the story, or the cliff notes for those of you people who are dating yourself. Um, that's kind of funny, but <laughs> most of my jokes are not that funny, so it's par for the course. Um, it, it was as if the psalmist knew where world history was going, and, and that informed his prayer. That's what it seems like. So do with me what I used to love to do in English class and turn with me to the end of the story. Revelation chapter 7. We saw where the nations started. Let's see where they're going. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Here's what John says after he gets a glimpse into how God will start to wrap up world history as we know it. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This, essentially, is what the psalmist was praying for. And friends, this is where God's story is going. In fact, this is the goal of God's story. The goal of God's story is global worship. It's the first point of our sermon. The goal of God's story is global worship. When I say global worship, I don't mean every single person who's ever lived turning from their idols to worship God, but I do need at least some people from every single tribe, every single language, every single tongue, rejecting their idols and turning to the one true God to give him the worship that he deserves. This is where world history is headed. Now, somebody's probably thinking, doesn't that make God an egomaniac? I mean, if, if world history is really headed to the global worship of him, and, and here's what I would say, here's what I would ask you. What would you have him replaced with? Or who would you have him replaced with? If God is in himself the origin of all goodness and all joy and all power and all might and all wisdom, then of course he ought to be at the center of world history. And if he is the only one who can satisfy, of course we should spend our existence worshiping him. So, so it's right for God to be at the center of world history. That's where it's going. That's the end of the story. But when this was being written, the only people who were truly worshiping God were a faithful few Jewish people in Israel. So we've got to ask the question, how do we get from there to the global worship of God? What happens in between in the story of God that results in a great multitude worshiping him? Let's go back to verses 1 and 2 and start to see. The prayer is that God would be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? That your way may be known on the earth, your saving power to all nations. 
Psalm 67, 1 and 2 makes it clear the way that God intends to bring about this global worship. He is going to join himself to a specific people. And he's going to bless those people. He's going to make his face shine upon those people. So that as the surrounding nations look at those specific chosen people, they'll conclude their God is the one true God. You see, from the very beginning, the people of God were supposed to be a so that people. They were, they were blessed so that they would be a blessing. And it's interesting the language that the psalmist chooses here. Because he points us right back to the beginning of the story. Verse 1, it's essentially a paraphrase of this blessing that God gave to Aaron. First high priest of Israel. Right? And God commands Aaron and his sons to pray this prayer over the people of Israel. This prayer goes like this, number 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then he explains, so they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So in this blessing, God was tying up his identity with his people. He was connecting himself to them so that as people looked at them, they would ultimately see him. But but verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 67 don't just point us back to Aaron. They point us back even farther in God's story. They point us back to Abraham. So go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12. We, we looked a little bit already at the origin of the nations in chapters 10 and 11. But something very interesting happens in between chapters 11 and 12. You see, in, in 10 and 11, God was giving us this kind of global view with what was going on with all of the nations at that time. But, but as chapter 12 starts, the story zooms in on this one man and his family. A man named Abraham, or who at this time was called Abram. Here's what we find. Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your great name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See the connection between that and Psalm 67, 1 and 2? God was choosing a specific man, his specific family, to bless so that through that family, all the other nations of the earth would be blessed. And friends, let me just say, this is a major role of the people of God in God's grand narrative for human history. God's people have, from the beginning, been God's vehicle to bring about global worship. Now, we've seen the beginning of the story, and we've seen the end of the story. And here's what I want to do for about the next 10 minutes. I want to trace this story through human history. Because I want us to leave here very confident two things today. One is, God is writing a story in human history. I want us to understand that. This is not mythical. This is not a book of morals. This is an account of what God is doing in human history. I want us to be assured of that when we leave. But I also want us to see that we, as the people of God, right, which we'll see in a minute, have a specific role in this story. So let me give you an overview. We're going to kind of be 30,000 feet, but I'm going to ask you to hang, hang in there with me. We start in Genesis 12. God specifically chose to bless Abraham and his offspring so that through them all the nations of the earth, earth will be blessed. After many years and a, a time of serious testing for Abraham, God reaffirms this promise in Genesis chapter 22. He says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Abraham had a son. 
son was named Isaac. Here's what God said to Isaac. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Isaac had Jacob. And before Jacob got married, before Jacob had kids, here is what God told Jacob. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God was uniting himself to a specific family to bless them so that the surrounding nations would see that he is the one true God. Jacob had 12 kids. Those 12 sons had their own families. Those families became the 12 tribes of Israel. See, Israel is just another name that God gave Jacob. So Israel is essentially Abraham's family. Well, famine caused them to have to move down into Egypt. It didn't take long for them to be enslaved in Egypt, and they were enslaved for 400 years. During that 400-year period, the nation grew from just a few families to 2 million people. And God, after 400 years, he looked on them in their helpless estate and he remembered the promise that he had made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and he said he would deliver them. And that's what he did. Miraculous act after miraculous act, he showed up to Pharaoh and finally Pharaoh just said, you guys can go. So the people of God are leaving and then Pharaoh has second thoughts. He sends his army after them and they corner them at the Red Sea. So now Israel has Pharaoh and his army behind them. They've got the sea in front of them and they're wondering, God, why did you bring us here for this? And God said, well, I'm going to split the sea and I'm going to crush it down on Egypt. And let me tell you why I'm going to do it. The Egyptians, this is Exodus 14, 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. You see, even in the very beginning, in Israel's kind of first deliverance, we see God do this so that Egypt, in this case, would see that he is the one true God and would start to acknowledge him as the global king. But redemptive history continues. Now these people are in the wilderness. They're wandering around, and they're wandering around for 40 years. And God says, look, I'm going to give you my law. And one of the reasons I'm going to give you my law, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Okay, Moses says, see, I've taught you statutes and rules. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as this? See, one of the purposes of God's law was so that the nations would look on and say, they're different. They are the people of God. Now, the next act in redemptive history moves them into the land. So after 40 years wandering, we saw in the book of Joshua, they finally get to come into the land. But as they come into the land, they fail to fulfill their role to be God's vehicle to bring about global worship. See, instead of being distinct and set apart, they start intermingling with the nations around them. Instead of influencing these nations, these nations start to influence them start to affect the way they worship, the gods that they worship, even affect their, their form of government. And so after a while, Israel asked God, hey, God, can we have kings? We want to have kings. Everybody else has kings. We want to have kings. So God says, all right, you want it? You got it. And he gives them kings. But because of the, the sin in the hearts of those kings, even the kingdom splits. And so the nation of Israel formed Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And both failed to fulfill their role to be God's vehicle to bring about blessing to the nations. But God would keep reminding them. 
He, he reminded him over and over and over again through his scriptures, through his prophets, for, through psalms like the one we're looking at today. But even as much as God reminded his people of their role in his story, they couldn't carry it out. They didn't have the power to carry it out. They were burdened and broken under the curse of sin. And as they continued to be influenced by the surrounding nations, God finally allowed them to be exiled. The north to Assyria in 722 B.C., the south to Judah in 586 B.C. The people of God were taken out of the land that he promised. But God didn't stop writing his story. God kept writing his story. And he used two guys specifically during this time of exile to both remind the people of Israel of their role in God's story, but also to show them how they ultimately might fulfill this role. So around 700 B.C., God speaks to Isaiah. And here's what Isaiah says in chapter 49, verse 6. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. See, God was promising through his servant. And when we see the word, the term servant, especially at the end of the book of Isaiah, it's a reference to the coming Messiah. So God was promising through this suffering servant, through this coming Messiah, that he would gather the people of Israel and that he would again send them to the nations with the good news of God's salvation. And and then a a hundred years later or so, a little bit more than that, he speaks to a guy named Ezekiel. And here's what God says. He tells him how we would ultimately be able to fulfill this mission. He says in Ezekiel 36, And I will give you a new heart. A new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. So when we put those two promises side by side, here's what we see. There would be a Messiah who would come. He would gather the people of God. He would remind them of their mission to go to the nations, and he would empower them with his own spirit to accomplish the task. Well, not long after that prophecy The people of Israel came back in their land. But then the strangest thing happened. It seemed like redemptive history just hit pause. For 400 years, God went silent. Until a man named Jesus of Nazareth came on the scene. And Jesus goes throughout Galilee and Judea, and he's claiming to be this promised Messiah. In fact, he he makes that reference in the very first time he teaches. And and we know from Matthew's gospel that Jesus of Nazareth was a descendant of Abraham. We see Paul say later that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham through which God's blessing would come to the nations. You see, friends, the people of God can never fulfill their calling to bring about the global worship of God because they are still under the curse of sin. But on a Roman cross around 30 AD, Jesus of Nazareth, who was God in the flesh, took the curse of sin on himself. He wasn't just being murdered by Roman soldiers or turned over by Jewish authorities. No, no, no. God had made him a curse for us and for all the nations who were guilty under the power of sin and God punished him. See, all of human history sort of hangs on this one weekend in Jerusalem 
And three days later, women went to the grave, but the grave was empty. Jesus of Nazareth had defeated the curse that hung over the world because of sin. He had risen again, proving to be God and proving to have dealt victoriously with sin and death and the curse. And then he could offer free forgiveness and eternal life to any who believed. And then he did just as Isaiah and Ezekiel prophesied. He gathered his first followers. And we see at the end of every gospel, he reminded them of their mission to take the gospel to the nations. And then we see even in the book of Acts, he guarantees his spirit. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, God was forming again his people to go to the nations with the good news of his salvation for the first time, empowered by the Spirit of God. And the book of Acts tells the story. Starting in Jerusalem, these first followers of Christ are witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. And they go up north into Judea and Samaria, and they keep moving north and west into the Mediterranean world. The gospel was spreading. God's story was advancing. The the prayer of the psalmist was being answered. His saving power, God's saving power was being made known to all the earth. All the peoples were praising God. The nations were coming to fear the God of Israel. But then, around 60 AD, as Paul arrives to Rome, the narrative stops. And then, basically, the New Testament skips from there all the way to the end, what we saw in Revelation chapter 7. And so we've got to ask, has redemptive history stopped? Is God still writing this grand narrative? And I would say, my friend, just because the Bible doesn't have it recorded doesn't mean that the story of God is not in full swing. Because with that next generation of the faithful New Testament people of God, they owned their identity to bring about global worship. And so they moved north and west into Europe. And and yes, some generations halted the process. But as people came back to their identities, they were exposed to the scriptures, the gospel kept spreading until it came across the Atlantic to the Americas. For people who came here before this was even a country as missionaries to tell the nations about the rule of the one true God. And through faithful people like George Whitfield, who most of our city is named for, and John Wesley, who came here as missionaries, and then generation after generation after them, parents and preachers and normal old people who passed on the news about the saving power of God, friend, you and I are here this morning. A.D. 2014, 69th Street, Savannah, Georgia, worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we find ourselves in the story of God. Because people who have been led by the Spirit of God have taken their role seriously. They came to us when we were part of the unbelieving nations. But because of their faithful witness, we have now become a part of the people of God. 
And friends, now it's time for us to fulfill our responsibility in that story. It's time for us to embrace our role. And our role is just the same as it's always been. Friend, we are to be God's vehicle to bring about global worship. We, as the people of God, are God's vehicle to bring about the global worship of God. See, starting, starting with Abraham, right, we saw in Genesis 12, this has been God's plan for his people. And the New Testament tells us that we are now a part of Abraham's family by faith in Christ. Friend, we have not been given the Spirit of God, the forgiveness of sins, the guarantee of eternal life, just to celebrate our own story. Just so that when our story's done, we can go to heaven. We are a part of a much bigger story. We are a part of a much more vibrant history. We have been made alive by the Spirit of God. We have been blessed by the forget, with the forgiveness of sins that we might be a blessing to the nations. Starting in Savannah and moving to the ends of the earth. See, guys, this morning we have kind of an option. We can either fight to be the main character in our own story and do with our own life whatever we want to do. Or we can become part of the supporting cast in the greatest story ever told. The only story that will last. If you want to join me in finding your place in that story, I want to close with four applications. Four applications that will help us find our place in that story. The first thing we need to do if we want to find our place in that story, is to pray. We need to be people who pray. Psalm 67 is first and foremost a prayer. The psalmist is praying that the nations would worship God. We need to join him in praying that prayer. We need, we need to prayerfully repent that we have, we have obsessed over our own stories more than we have lived in the story of God. We need to pray that God would give us his heart for people who don't know him in Savannah and to the ends of the earth. And friends, let me just confess to you. My heart is not nearly as affected as it should be by the reality of global lostness. There are multiple billion people who don't know Jesus Christ. There are 250 million people on planet Earth who have literally no access to the gospel, no access to a Bible, no access to the name of Jesus, no access to somebody who even knows Jesus. 250 million. And most of us are unaffected by it. We need to pray that God would give us his heart, that God would give us his compassion we need to pray that God would change us, that, that we would see how he is moving here and among the nations, and we would ask him how we can get in his story. And, and friend, if you're, if you're wondering, man, well, how do I even pray for the nations? Where do I even start? Two resources I'd love to steer you toward. One is called Operation World. It's a book with different nations of the earth. tells you about the spirit, spiritual climate of those nations, kind of prayer points on how you could pray for them. It'd be a great thing to pray at the dinner table every night with your family. Or, or joshuaproject.net is a website that gives you a, a different unreached people group every single day. Tells you how you can pray for them. Th those are great places to start if you want to find yourself in the story of God through prayer. So, so that's our first 
application. The second application for us, if we want to find ourselves in the story of God, is that we need to live. We need to live in such a way that we point the people around us to God. We talked about how Israel was called to be a so that people. They were blessed so that they might be a blessing. And the same is true for us. We need to live our lives, you guys, in, in front of our families, and in front of our friends, in front of our coworkers, in front of our classmates. We need to live in such a way that they observe our life. And they say, man, there's something different about those people. The way they love each other. The way they worship God. There's... Man, do you hear what that guy was going through and he's still joyful? Right? These are the things that Jesus had in mind when he said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and glorify your, your Father in heaven. Our lives should be distinct, both as individuals but also as a church. Right? Our interactions with each other should look differently. The way that we love each other, the way we're unified. Look at what Jesus said in, in John 13, something you're familiar with. By this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is what we want people to see when they look at CBC. This is what we want people to experience when they come here. If you invite somebody to your community group, this is our hope that they would see love in action. And it would would be a powerful apologetic. So we pray, we live. Third, if we want to find our place in God's story, we need to give. We need to give. Some of you are like, man, I thought CBC didn't talk about giving. I'm going to talk about it today. JV team's up, so I'll talk about it. (laughs) Friends, compared to the world, we have so much money. We're loaded compared to the world. And one of the best ways that we can advance the gospel is to leverage our resources in different parts of the world. I I get it. Some of you guys are married with four kids and a nine to five. It's not feasible for you to up and move to Saudi Arabia. I understand. But your dollars can go where you never could. And people can hear the good news about Jesus because of our giving. Friends, what would it look like if we leveraged our resources to make a global impact? And guys, a little bit goes such a long way. For example, CBC fully funds a bunch of Vietnamese pastors. We fully fund them, and we give each of them just over 100 bucks a month. We're their only donor. And all their expenses are taken care of with just that. People are hearing the gospel in Vietnam just because a little bit of money from Savannah, Georgia. How cool would this be, my friend, one day when you are a part of that great multitude and there are people from every language and tribe and tongue and, and somebody's trying to get your attention and they say, dude, I'm, I'm here because you gave. The gospel got to me because you gave 25 bucks a month. I, listen, I've got no play here. I'm not asking you to give money to CBC. There are lost people all over planet earth that need to hear. And one of the best ways that we as the wealthy American church can help is to give. So that's the third thing. Last, we need to go. We need to pray. We need to live. We need to give. We need to go. And let me tell you what I mean by go. All of us have been given this command by God to go and make disciples of all nations. 
If you're a Christian, you're, not ex- you're just not exempt. I mean, everybody who has been made alive by the Spirit of God is given this mission to make disciples. Now, again, this doesn't need, mean you need to move to the 1040 window. But it does mean that God has strategically called you to be a witness right where you are. I mean, guys, America, this is the nations. America's not the chosen people of God. Jesus was not a white guy, right? This is, this is the nations. We are in the nations, and the nations are coming to us. There's 111 different countries represented at SCAD, 76 countries different represented at Armstrong. There, there are people from every nationality all over this city. We're called to be witnesses. We're called to be witnesses at, at Calvary or Country Day or Jenkins. We're called to be witnesses at, on the college campus. We're called to be witnesses in the office. We're called to be witnesses in the neighborhood. We are God's plan, you guys, to reach this secular, postmodern nation where all the nations are flocking to. But we're not just God's plan to reach our backyard. We are also God's plan, God's vehicle to bring about global worship. And so in a room this size, there's probably a chance that God might be calling somebody to go where there's little or no access to the gospel. If that's you, that's awesome. We want to help you. We want to support you. We want to mobilize you. We want to serve you in any way we can so that you can fulfill your role in God's story. We want our church to be filled with more and more people like that. People like Grant Harwell, who's in Nicaragua right now, spending six months down there trying to figure out if God's calling him long term. He's working with an agency that is training Latins to go into the 1040 window. People like, like Gracie, who's coming back to raise funds to go back to Uganda so she can disciple women and children. People like Hannah, who has finished up at SCAD and now she's headed to Southeast Asia for five years to tell people about Jesus. Both, quick plug for them, both of them are coming back to raise money too soon. So if you're interested in giving, that would be a great way to serve people in our church. We want there to be more people like John and Janie Chittister who are sitting right here who spend huge chunks of their year training pastors and leaders in Africa. We want our church to be producing people like that so that we really are God's vehicle to bring about global worship. What's your role in that story? Where do you fit? What's God calling you to? What would it look like, you guys, if we brought our own story to God? And we said, God, you can do with my story whatever you want. I want to get caught up in your story. And I think what we would find, my friends, is that story is a much, much better story. A story that started with one man and one family in Genesis 12. A story that ends with a great multitude that no one could number from every language and nation from every tongue, standing before God and standing before the Lamb, praising Him for His salvation. Don't you want to find yourself in that story? Friends, let's do what we can to bring about the global worship of God. Let's pray. Lord, we, we love you. We do. We, and we worship you. We honor you. We thank you that you have taken our curse on yourself. You have defeated 
death and your resurrection. You have secured forgiveness and eternal life for us. Lord, I pray that we would respond appropriately. I pray that we would respond by worshiping you, and I pray that we would respond by living our lives for you, by living in your story. We need help to do this, but we thank you that you have given us your spirit to empower us. I pray that we would even know a new reality of what it means to be led by your spirit as we just seek to fulfill the role you've given us. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You guys stand and worship with us. Exalted